This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. She's lived on both sides of the law. She's really law savvy. She knows what it means to be a criminal. And she had worked in law enforcement. She'd studied law enforcement in college. So she has a sense for how these cases could work. And she's also from Indian country. So she understands that jurisdictional complexity that very often is consequential for tribal members, but in this case was becoming consequential for a non-tribal member too. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Author Sierra Crane Murdoch has written a true crime book about a woman investigating a true crime herself. It's called Yellowbird, Oil, Murder, and a Woman's Search for Justice in Indian Country. In this book, Sierra explores the story of an amateur detective and her troubled history and how she manipulated people to help solve a case. I consider myself in some sense an environmental journalist, an investigative journalist, and I came to this crime story that is at the center of my book, Yellowbird, largely on accident, just by continuing over the years to go back to this reservation after that first story I wrote and reporting other stories that emerged from that first one. And then hearing about this crime, about the disappearance of a young oil worker from the reservation and becoming curious myself what had happened to him. Going to the reservation, you know, I was 23 when I started going there and then spent largely the next eight years of my life returning there and, and writing about the whale boom and writing about the transformation of this place and the stories that emerged out of that. That has been, you know, the defining journalistic experience of my adult life and really the defining experience of my adult life. Well, let's talk about how you start the book. So this is a story about a crime, but it's largely a story about the woman who helped figure out this crime. You could call her an amateur sleuth. Her name is Lissa Yellowbird. And I met Lissa in 2014 when I was going to the reservation to investigate this crime, this disappearance of a young oil worker. He was white. He was working as a truck pusher, which meant he just would order trucks to well sites to bring water 
to use in fracking. So this water would be pumped down the wells and that would sort of like break apart the rock and the oil would rush out. And he had been working in the Bakken oil fields of North Dakota just for a few months at that point. And he was working on the property of the tribal chairman, essentially the president of the tribe, this guy named Tex Hall. And Lissa knew of Tex Hall because he was her chairman. He was a really important political figure in Indian country at large. And he also was, in a certain sense, a relative. She was related to him. Hmm. A tribal chairman is essentially a president, right? A tribe is a sovereign nation. And that means that the tribe has the inherent right to govern itself on all sorts of matters. And over time, the federal government, since the beginning of America as a governmental body, has been chipping away at the sovereignty of tribes. But but tribes have this inherent right to govern their own people and to govern their own land. When she is growing up on the reservation, paint that picture for me. What do people do and what was life like? Yeah, the reservation was pretty quiet. When Lissa was growing up, her mom was a professor at universities across North Dakota. And so she was moving around a lot. And there's this term, urban Indian, Native Americans who have grown up in cities. But there is this constant relationship frequently that people maintain with their home reservation because their family's still there, their grandparents are still there, their uncles, whoever, they're going back for family reunions. They're going back frequently and maintaining a close connection to this place that they're from. And that was certainly the case for Alyssa. So she would spend years here and there going back, living on the reservation, living back off of it. And it was really quiet. There's an important historical piece to the reservation that becomes really critical in understanding the story of the oil boom. And that's something that happened in the 1950s. The tribe used to be the Manantadatsa Rikra Nation, which is this assembly of three tribes to which Lissa belongs. The nation used to be highly self-sufficient. A lot of tribal members were farmers. They had pretty tight-knit communities. They had their own schools. A lot of students weren't being sent actually off to boarding schools at that point. Like there were sort of contained places for those communities to really flourish on their own. And the MHA nation really weathered the depression in a really impressive way. But in the 1950s, Congress presented what was called the Pick Sloan Plan, the Pick Sloan plan was to build a series of dams on the Missouri River. And these dams flooded out land that largely belonged to tribes. Oh. It was land that was the most arable land. And it was where all the villages were. And so between 1950 and 1954, the Manantadatsa Rikra Nation relocated 90% of its communities up to higher ground and had to completely start over from scratch. Was that intentional from the government? Was that intentional to drive them out? It was intentional to locate the dam specifically in places where it would relocate Native communities and not okay. white communities. It was like, we want dams because we're going to try to control the flooding and we're right. going to get electricity to these farmers out there. Right. But the people who are going to suffer the consequences are going to be the Native people. So they moved up and then they had to start all over again. Right. Melissa was born in the late 60s. She was born kind of into the aftermath of this major relocation. And it was a relocation that led to this diaspora of Native people from the reservation. So when Lissa was growing up there, it was a very poor place. And it was the only place she really considered home. And it was a place where she could feel really free, where she could sort of run out through all these draws along the lake with her uncles and her cousins. And they had horses and her grandparents had a farm. And so it was very pastoral. There was something 
really comforting to her about that place as well. So how do we get from her being in what seems to be comfortable and sort of an idyllic place to drugs later on in life? Yeah, that's one of the stories I unfold fairly slowly over the course of the book. It's why Lissa, who's someone who's brilliant, (laughs) who has a lot of familial love surrounding her, a lot of support surrounding her, why she fell so hard into this really difficult lifestyle that was ultimately pretty damaging for her and for some people around her. And a lot of it has to do with traumas that she experienced when she was younger and the shame of those traumas. She has several kids and she would have these children taken away from her because something happened, right? And then the kids being taken away from her would then sort of compel her to want to use again. And so she would go through these cycles of shame and becoming addicted again. And it lasted for a long time. Does she remain close to her mom during this whole thing? Yeah, she does remain close to her mom. Her mom is a really important figure in her life in the sense that Lissa is her only daughter. Her mom wants her to survive, of course. She loves her deeply and she's doing everything that she possibly can to try to get Lissa to stop using drugs or to get Lissa to be more present for her children. And this causes a lot of conflict between them, right? Because sometimes it's her own mom who reports her to police. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there has to be some sort of a turning point, or maybe not. Is she just caught in some sort of sting at some point? Lissa had been followed for a long time by several investigators who were trying to break apart a drug ring in Minot, North Dakota, where Lissa was living in the early 2000s. So she'd been followed by these investigators and eventually they caught up with her. She was dealing and using meth at that time and she was caught twice and she was given two concurrent prison sentences of 15 years. And she actually ended up serving only three of those years. So she returns in 2009 after serving three years of a 15-year sentence, and things have changed on the reservation. We've gone from what sounds to me like farmland, and what does she find when she returns? So when she gets back to the reservation around 2009, 2010, most of the reservation land has been leased to oil companies. And this was something that happened pretty quickly. It happened pretty much by the end of 2008. Almost the entire reservation had been leased. And these companies had come in and had hired people within the tribe who had some sort of standing, right? So Tex Hall, for example, was hired as a landman for a oil company where these relatives would go around and they would knock on people's doors and they'd say, hey, this company wants to lease your land for oil drilling. What do you say? This is the amount of money they're offering as an upfront bonus. And in the end, you'll end up with this much in royalties here, sign here. And pretty quickly, a majority of tribal members signed those rights away. And so when Lissa arrived, the drilling was really just beginning. And all of a sudden, this community, which you know wasn't solely Native American, wasn't solely composed of members of the Men and Nazarikra Nation, all of a sudden there was this influx of non-Indigenous people to the reservation. And this presented a really interesting and a really difficult problem in that 
tribes have no criminal jurisdiction over non-Native people, even within the boundaries of their own reservation. So the reservation's population was tripling to quadrupling with people over whom their police force had zero control. I mean, they could offer like a traffic ticket. That was pretty much it. Wow. So let me see if I have this straight. And the second part might be wrong. So the non-Indigenous people who now are on the reservation because of the oil boom, the Indigenous police department, I guess, is that what it would be? Would have no jurisdiction over them. But is it right to say that the U.S. or state investigators have no jurisdiction over anyone on the reservations? Is that right, too? This is where it gets complicated. So you're getting at it. (laughs) So these guys can do anything they want because nobody can get to them, right? Well, so here's the thing. They don't technically have impunity on the reservation, right? If a crime is committed between a non-tribal member and a non-tribal member, right? Both victim and perpetrator are non-tribal members. Then that case belongs to the state. If either the victim or the perpetrator is a member of the tribe, then that case belongs to the feds if it's any sort of major crime, but also if it's like a minor crime. And the problem is that a lot of these minor crimes end up slipping through the cracks as well because there's no one with the money or desire to actually take on those crimes. You end up with this jurisdictional tangle where very often you need to actually know the race or know the political affiliation of the perpetrator and victim before you're even able to begin assigning investigators to a case, which becomes really complicated, right? Because oftentimes cases are a matter of time, right? Like the longer you take to begin investigating, the more time you're giving for that evidence to sort of slip away or get buried or just disappear altogether. Right. Well, I think that we should shift into the actual crime that pulled Lissa into some of this. So let's just start with, she gets back at 2009, 2010. Does she stay sober like her family hopes? Yeah, she does. And I think it's remarkable sort of even to her. (laughs) She has told me, you know, I I didn't necessarily expect to stay sober. And there was this moment when she got back and she went to an old storage unit to get couches and other furniture to furnish her new apartment. And she had all these crates of documents that she had saved. She's incredible at documentation, which was what made writing this book such a dream. But she had saved all of her court documents and all of her arrest records from before. And in one of these boxes, in one of these plastic crates, she found a little bit of meth. And she held on to it for a little while. And then one day she just flushed it down the toilet. Wow. That was the closest she came, she says, to using again. But she didn't. And instead, what she did and sort of what her children would accuse her of was that she replaced one addiction with another. Mm -hmm. And her addiction became searching for Christopher Clark and trying to figure out what had happened to him. Tell me about Christopher Clark. Yeah, Christopher Clark was from the Pacific Northwest. He grew up in Western Washington, and had spent some time in Texas. He'd actually gone to Texas right before the Bakken oil boom to work at a car dealership and live with his girlfriend. And then he and his girlfriend broke up and he ran into a friend in Texas, a friend he actually knew from Washington. They had been motorcycle racers together. And his friends and his wife, this guy James Henriksen and his wife Sarah Krebeling, told Casey, hey, you know, there's this oil boom going on in North Dakota. We're thinking of getting some trucks and starting this company. You should come with us. 
And at first he wasn't really inclined to do it. But then after his breakup, he called them back and said, yeah, I'll, I'll come up to North Dakota. So he came up to North Dakota and he lived with James and Sarah in a little trailer by the lake on the reservation. And they started out working for a different trucking company, just sort of contracting. And then one day, James Henriksen met Tex Hall, the chairman of the tribe. And it seems likely that James kind of knew that Tex had a powerful position on the reservation and that he would be someone who maybe would be really helpful to their business. Hmm. And he just kind of stumbled across Tex's house one day and he had an empty gas can. And he said, hey, I've run out of gas. Can you help me? And Tex said, yeah, sure, and gave him some gas. And then he came back the next day and said, hey, you know, I've got this trucking company wondering if I can run some trucks with you. And Tex was basically like, yeah, sure. That sounds fine to me. (laughs) What do you have? And so he created this very convenient partnership, right? Where there are laws on reservations as to who can actually own companies and who gets the first contracts when it comes to construction or, or really any industry. And that's to help boost the tribal sovereignty of these tribes so that they could be giving preference to their own members or giving their preference to indigenous business owners to help keep money within their own economy. But there are loopholes to that. And James Henriksen found one of those loopholes through tax. So they had this trucking company and it, it was going really well. They had a quite a bit of business. And in February of 2012, Casey disappeared and he was supposed to go on vacation. He had told some people that maybe he was going to go see his grandpa in Oregon and go from there. And before he went on vacation, he drove to the trucking company, to Texas property, and he was dropping off his credit card, his company credit card. And then supposedly he took off and no one saw him again. How does everybody know about the story? Casey's mother hadn't heard from him for several months. But she was already a little bit estranged from Casey. Mm. And it was really his friends, a friend of his who worked at the trucking company, and then also his roommate, who started to become really concerned. Investigators started looking into it, but also made no progress. And also thought, this is a transient scene here. Guys are moving in and out of the oil fields all the time. Just wait, he'll probably pop up. So Casey's mom was the one who began to really sort of publicly ring the alarm bells. And she started posting on Facebook saying, I haven't heard from my son in a very long time. She basically like laid out all the details of when he had been last heard from. And her post started to gain some attention. And then they started to circulate on the reservation. And Lissa saw them. She saw the Facebook posts. And she reached out to Jill Williams, Casey's mother, and said, hey, I'm really sorry about your son's disappearance. I'm a mother too. I'd love to help you. Let me know what I can do because this is tribal land and there are a lot of complicated jurisdictional issues and I can help you navigate that if you want. So she had never met Casey Clark, had she? She hadn't. And this was one of the questions that really drove me was why could she become so obsessed with searching for a stranger, right? Someone she had no real personal connection to. And also someone who was white. This story is an inversion of the classic white savior narrative. Mm -hmm. She is a Native woman who is searching for this young white man. And I think that's a very perplexing narrative direction for a lot of people. It's like, why? Why would she care? And I think she genuinely cared because she is a mother. And I think Lissa is someone in this 
comes out later in her story, right? She's someone who could have gone missing herself. And she recognizes that there are certain people in this world whose stories we overlook and people who, if they go missing, won't really be paid attention to by law enforcement. Or if their cases are investigated, when not much progress is made, they'll just be dropped. And she saw herself as someone who was devalued by society. And she saw Casey as someone who, being part of this movement of young transient young men, was also devalued by society. So she gets in touch with Casey's mom and says, I want to help. What happens next? Yeah, so Lisa and Jill team up. And Lisa begins by saying, okay, well, Tex, he's a stand-up guy. All my relatives voted for him in the election. You know, he's really important in Indian country. He's best friends with my stepdad. Like, I'll get to him. Don't worry. (laughs) So Lisa starts reaching out to Tex and she gets no answer. Hmm. She starts calling tribal offices. She gets no answer. And she's really confused by this. She thinks, gosh, if someone disappeared from your property and you're an important political figure, wouldn't you want to try to figure out what happened? Not only just from a moral standpoint, but also just from the fact that this could really come back and bite you if you're trying to win future elections. So she was concerned about that and they really weren't making that much progress. Lisa began speaking to some of Casey's friends and she spoke to his former roommate, this guy named Judd Parker. And Judd was like a deadhead from North Carolina. He hated the oil boom. He was kind of an environmentalist, but he was up there because he just had gone through a divorce and needed to make some money to send back to his kids. And Judd was really concerned about Casey. He was one of the first people who had sort of sounded the alarm about his disappearance. And Judd calls James. Casey's friend who had recruited him to the oil fields and who ran that oil company. I've been wondering about James because you haven't mentioned James at all, about him being concerned about this because he would be the best source, right? He was working with Casey. Yeah. And so Judd asked James and he says, you've got to know what happened to him. I mean, you're his best friend. And James goes, no, you know, I'm not really his best friend. Like Casey and I weren't really that close. And Judd goes, oh, okay, interesting. Well, you know, let me know if you hear anything. And then Judd learns something. And he learns that Casey had been really not happy working for this company. He had been overworked. He was stressed. He felt like James was giving him too many hours and not enough pay. And Casey had connected with a friend and also with a tribal member who was trying to start her own trucking company. And they had talked about going off on their own and doing their own thing. And Casey hadn't told James this yet, but apparently Judd learns James had found out that Casey was doing this behind his back. Hmm. So Judd calls James again (laughs) and he says, hey, I just heard that Casey was going to start this new company and maybe take some of those contracts with him. And James says, yeah, can you believe that? That my best friend would do that to me. So that's when Judd became really suspicious of James. And so he shares this story with Lissa and he says, you know, I I think James is involved. And Lissa at this point has been speaking to a lot of people involved in the company who knew Casey. And a lot of them have also said that they don't totally trust James, that they think something might be going on with him. 
Not only that, but James gets called in by some official investigators, some North Dakota state investigators. I was wondering about that. Who's involved at this point? Any tribal investigators, state or federal? Which are leading any of this? At this point, it was state. Okay. Because he was non-native. The feds didn't have necessarily any reason at this point to get involved. It's not a crime, right? Until you have a body. (laughs) Right, right. And so it was just a missing persons investigation. Okay. So at this point, it belonged to the state of North Dakota. At least they're involved though, which I'm sure gave Joe and Lissa a lot of relief, knowing that at least somebody's investigating. Yeah, the state investigator called James in and interviewed him and, and just something seemed weird to him about James, that it seemed like he was not necessarily telling him the whole truth. So that's really just what Lissa and Jill had to work with. Very little information. But they did have a person of interest. They couldn't call him a suspect yet because, again, it wasn't a crime. But they had a person of interest. And and the state investigators had named him also a person of interest. If you're thinking like an investigator, right? So you are going to somebody who might have had a conflict with him, which could have been James if KC is planning to take his business away, part of the business away. So then you're also looking at the last place where KC was, which as at the tribal chairman's house, Tex Hall. If we involve Tex, don't we then have to involve the federal government at that point? I mean, is there a point where Tex gets involved? So Tex was also being questioned, but he also didn't really know anything. There was a lot of confusion around how well does Tex actually know James? How well does Tex actually know his wife, Sarah? And they still haven't found Casey Clark's body at this point. So where do Lissa and Casey's mom and the state police go from here? So the state police are sort of, they're stuck. And so Lissa does two things. The first thing is that she says, you know what? We need more investigative power in this. We need to get the feds involved. And so she goes to this agent, the state agent actually named Mike Marcus, who is in Minot, the town where Lissa was formerly arrested. And she goes to the police department where she, the last time she was in handcuffs. A prisoner, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And she looks up the guy who arrested her because he was someone that she kind of trusted. She had like an ongoing conversation with this investigator when he was investigating her for drugs. He kind of liked her, even though she was committing these crimes. Lissa's like a pretty agreeable, likable person in a lot of ways. And so they kind of had this relationship and she says, yeah, I know Mike was the person who sent me to prison, but I think I could get him to help with this case. And right before that, she goes out to Oregon. She takes a drive all the way out to Bend, Oregon. She meets Jill and Jill comes with her and they go to the courthouse and Lissa digs up every possible court record she can on James Henriksen. And she learns that he has a bit of a criminal history as well, that he was arrested for operating a large marijuana operation, that he had been involved in potentially manufacturing some like Oxycontin-like pills, that he had stolen a trailer, that he had been involved in a assault of his former wife. Wow. And so she begins to sort of follow the paper trail on James. And she basically like gets copies of about a 500, 400 to 500 page stack of documents on James. And she brings it back with her to North Dakota. She makes copies of the stack and she actually mails one to Tex Hall. And then she takes the other stack and she brings it to this state agent, Mike Marcus. 
And she says, you got to pay attention to this guy. He's actually on probation right now. And I think he's involved. And is there any way you can get him arrested so that we can investigate this other potential crime that he's now involved in? So the agent she brings these documents to kind of ignores her. Mike Marcus? Yeah. He did arrest her, so I assume that he was skeptical. Okay. And he told me, I just thought she was going in and out of addiction again. He also didn't trust her to be sober. But one day, a Department of Homeland Security agent, a young agent named Derek Trudell, wanders into Mike's office and sees some papers on his desk. And he's like, what's this? And he sees the documentation of this crime that James had committed before, which was he had been caught trying to acquire ingredients to manufacture pills. And Derek becomes really interested in this. Derek Trudell becomes interested in the crime and asks Mike if he can start looking into it. And so he and Lissa connect and he decides that one of the things that he'll do is get phone data from James and Casey from the day that Casey disappeared. And through that phone data, they learn that Casey's and James's phones moved in tandem Mm -hmm. that afternoon that Casey supposedly disappeared. Where did they go? Northwest of the reservation to the town of Williston. And actually in Williston was the place where Casey's truck was discovered. Okay, so they found his truck, but then not his body. Did they find the cell phone? Were they able to get close to where the cell phone was? No, they didn't find the cell phone. Okay, well, now they're making progress. So now they can put James with KC. He was obviously the last person to see him at all versus alive. What's the next big thing? So they're still stuck. (laughs) Still, you don't have Casey's body. You don't know where he's gone. It's still not a crime yet. So Lissa starts resorting to these sort of extra legal tactics. (laughs) She begins posting James's name online (gasps) and his wife's name. Oh, no. So she goes to Jill and she gets a series of photographs of Casey from his childhood and and also his adulthood. She basically tells the story of his life in these photos and she sets it to music and she makes this video and she puts it on YouTube. And the video sort of ends with pictures of James and Sarah suggesting that they might be responsible for his disappearance. And the video gets taken down. Yeah, no kidding. James and Sarah report it and they're like, this is libelous, take it down. So it gets taken down and she keeps reloading it. She reloads it and reloads it. And she gets hundreds of thousands of views on this video. Wow. She and Jill start getting all these tips that pour in, tips that make them even more suspicious of James. And then Lissa has this idea. (laughs) One of the people who reaches out to her is an investor in James's trucking company. And he has a lot of money. And Lissa doesn't have a lot of money, but she's got a lot of ideas. This investor is upset because he never got paid back what he believed he was owed by James. And so he wants to collaborate with Lissa too in trying to hold James accountable for something. And so Lissa says, that's great. Okay. What do you think about flyers? (laughs) And they end up designing this flyer with James and Sarah's photographs with just the words, beware across the top of it. Oh my gosh. With a list of James Pryor's underneath the photographs. And then a paragraph about how he is a person of interest in Casey's disappearance. And they print over 5,000 of these flyers. And Lissa gets them sent to her apartment in these boxes. 
And then she decides that she's going to start a website where people can go for more information. And she gets a specially made stamp and she hand stamps the web address on all of the envelopes of all these flyers. And then they're pre-addressed to every single home and business in the Bakken region. And so then she mails them and she puts as the return address James and Sarah's P.O. box. That is next level. Does anything come of this, this next sort of exploit that she does? Does she get any new information out of that? So at the same time, she reaches out to Sarah Kreveling, James's wife. Mm-mm. And she says to Sarah, I know Jill has been saying these mean things about you online. And I would really like to know the whole story. And I think that maybe the story is different from the one that Jill's telling you. And she sort of begins to play a bit of a double agent. You know, I would really love to hear the truth from you. Do you want to talk? I can help you get the truth out there if you are this worried about Jill saying these mean things about you online. So Sarah didn't know that Lissa had made the flyers. And Lissa, meanwhile, was playing double agent and trying to help Sarah figure out who made the flyers. Wow. So she would sort of text Sarah, well, why don't you try this? Why don't you call this person? Why don't you see where the print shops are in in North Dakota and see if you can track it down that way? And then meanwhile, Sarah was getting all these undeliverable flyers sort of stacking into her own P.O. box. As a result, Tex Hall dropped his partnership with James and Sarah. And suddenly, James and Sarah could no longer operate their trucking company on the reservation. They did lose their business and they had to restart in another place. So what ultimately did Lissa learn from Sarah about Casey Clark and what happened to him? Sarah told Lissa that on the day that Casey came to the office, He had seemed really excited to go on vacation. They had talked briefly. And then Casey had gone out to talk to James and Sarah never saw him again. And Lissa mostly believes Sarah, but she also believes that Sarah suspects more than she lets on. Hmm. Lissa's sense is that Sarah does sort of deep down know that maybe something really bad has happened and maybe James is involved. But it is so tragic in her mind to even allow herself to believe it and to even sort of allow herself to believe that her marriage should probably come to an end, that she's unwilling to even consider some of these narratives that Lissa is suggesting to her. When Lissa says, well, like, what if James did do it? What then? And Sarah sort of continually says to Lissa, you know, I've thought, well, maybe, but I just, I really don't see how he could have ever done anything that awful. So they develop this really complex relationship. Do they find him? They don't find Casey Clark. But what happens is there's another murder. So Lissa keeps searching for Casey Clark. She searches, she searches. She says, we're not going to be able to bring this case to trial unless we have a body. It's still not a crime until there's a body. Then in December of 2013, she gets a text message from Tex Hall. And a guy by the name of Doug Carlisle was murdered in Spokane, Washington. And Doug was a new business partner of James Henriksen's. Oh, boy. And so Lissa immediately has a sense for what has happened. And she starts putting two and two together and she starts calling investigators there. And the Department of Homeland Security agent who she had roped into this case starts calling as well. And there's a series of arrests and a series of interviews, not with James yet, but with 
several people who worked with this company. And when investigators go in and they get to the crime scene, they discover lying on the ground in the backyard of Doug Carlyle's house, a glove, a welding glove. And they submit that welding glove for DNA analysis. And the analysis comes back linking the glove to this man named Timothy Suko. And Timothy comes in for an interview and he confesses to having murdered Doug Carlisle. And then he also says, I have another thing I can confess to. He basically offers to confess to killing Casey Clark. On behalf of James? Yeah. So Timothy Suko was a hired hitman. Wow. And through these interviews with Suko and with several of the other accomplices, it begins to unravel this pretty complex set of murders that James had ordered, only a few of which actually were successful. I mean, that's unbelievable. Does he say what happened specifically with KC and where his body might be? He does. Yeah. So he gives a very detailed confession and... It's such a heartbreaking story. And there was this moment that was so, so difficult to watch. I watched his confession, you know, it was recorded. And there's this moment when he describes killing Casey and James was there. And then he sort of looks up from the table at all these investigators crowded around him. And he says he never intended to kill him. Like it it came onto him. He was hired to beat him up originally. And he sort of looks up and he says, you know, I'm really not that violent. Yeah. And I think this was this critical moment for me in understanding this story because I think it just indicated this level of denial, this level of denial of like everyone's own capacity to commit violence. And I think that was what I was seeing playing out across this entire story and across the oil boom was this level of complicity mixed with this denial, right? an inability to see ourselves clearly in the narratives that are sort of like playing out inevitably around us. So James goes to trial for just one murder, right? Just for the last businessman. Did they bring Casey up into this? He goes to trial for murdering both Casey Clark and for murdering Douglas Carlisle. James was convicted. He was convicted for both murders and also for operating a scheme to distribute heroin on the reservation. So they were never able to find Casey Clark's body, is that right? So yeah, after Timothy murdered Casey, they drove his truck up to Williston and that's where his truck was found. And there were multiple people involved. They took the evidence out to this other well site and they burned Casey's clothing. They got rid of his cell phone and then they went down into the Little Missouri River area. It's called the Badlands. And it's just this like really complex topography of canyons and mesas. And they drove back in there and they dug a hole. Well, Timothy dug a hole and he buried Casey there. The problem is that Timothy had never been in that landscape before. And when he came back with investigators, investigators brought him back several times. When he came back, he got disoriented. And investigators would say, you know, he really tried. You know, he had on these belly chains and his orange jumpsuit and he would tromp around the Badlands and he'd see something and and get an idea that, oh, that's where it was. And then he'd sort of like take off in that direction and they could barely keep up with him even with his belly chains on. He really wanted to find Casey, both because he felt a tremendous amount of sort of spiritual guilt around the crime, but also because he felt that it would help him get a kinder sentence if he could find Casey. And in the end, he wasn't able to. 
And Lissa still goes out there and searches. And Jill, I'm assuming his mother does too. She doesn't. Lissa says, I'm out there searching for people when their families can no longer do that Mm. because it was taking away from their living. Whereas for me, it's not taking away, it's giving me purpose. So I think she understands that it's a real burden on families whose members are missing because they don't have the closure of knowing where that person is. There's a certain closure that comes with having a body and being able to do a burial and being able to do that sort of final ceremonial goodbye. And I think that feels really important to Lissa, but she also understands that sometimes it can make families so obsessive that it takes away from them living their own lives. On the next episode of Wicked Words... Joe Pompeo on the minister, the congregant, and many suspects. Eleanor had three bullets to her head. Edward had one. Eleanor's throat was cut from ear to ear to the point where she was nearly decapitated. The clothing was completely neat. His arm was outstretched. Her head rested on it. Her hand was placed atop his leg. One of his calling cards was placed near the bodies, these love letters. So it was this very bizarre kind of chilling tableau. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.